you know, the one thing that I really decided kind of late in terms of creating the podcast was I initially wasn't going to inject the fact that I was a criminal defense attorney into it. I would, I told my wife, I'm like, nah, it's like, I'm trying to get away from that. And then I realized very, very shortly uh, into the journey that that was the wrong approach. And, you know, I, I just want people to kind of understand that the justice system that we live under, we need both sides and we need competent attorneys on both sides because that's the only way that justice can be done for the victims, for their families, is having competent counsel on both sides because it's the only way that justice works. This is the Silver Linings Playbook. I'm Jason Blair. That's Bob Mata, a longtime defense attorney who's the host of the spectacularly rated true crime podcast, Defense Diaries. This is the second episode of a two-part series with Bob. Bob has practiced law for two decades as a defense attorney. If you haven't had the chance, I'd recommend catching part one, where we discuss what got Bob into criminal defense law, his brief career in social work, what led him to start his podcast, and both the role of criminal defense attorneys in our society and what their lives are like. We also discussed the murders of four college students at the University of Idaho in 2022 and the Adnan Saeed case, which led to the podcast Serial, which ushered podcasting further into the mainstream. After practicing law for two decades, Bob opened up a box that his father gave him on his 21st birthday, filled with tapes between his father's client, John Wayne Gacy, and Gacy's attorneys. Bob used those tapes to record the first season of Defense Diaries. Bob's second season, called Tunnel Vision, is about his own client, Dr. Anthony Garcia, who was convicted of four murders in Nebraska. In the last episode, we left off discussing the media coverage of the Garcia trial. Today, we're going to talk more about the Garcia case and some of the doubts that came up in that case. We're also going to touch on the Alec Murdoch case, the Delphi murders, the burden defense attorneys carry, and those who have been exonerated long after being convicted. Why? 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 Why did you pick this one as a good uh, case to talk about the criminal justice system? Oh man, dude! Because I lived it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like I'm a I'm a first source guy, and right. like, there, in that case, like I sat there with it was the only case I ever tried with my father, and it was yeah. his last trial. Um, mm-hmm. And he he sat with me towards the end of it, like when I was preparing for my closing argument. Cause he actually second chaired me, which I took as a huge badge of honor. Nice. Um, you know, and he, he told, he looked at me and he said, Bob, he's like, I tried John Wayne Gacy and procedurally that case absolutely paled in comparison to like, to this case. Like I've, I've never seen or heard of a case like this, like procedurally dude, it was, uh, and when I say hard fought, like it's an understatement like like 
Don Klein, who is the county attorney, the county attorney out there, him and I on more on more than one occasion were nose to nose. Like, and I mean, behind behind closed doors type thing, you know, like mm-hmm. we're, you know, I mean, we were both passionate about our job, you know, I mean, it, like, and it and it's tough because there's a dynamic that I've got my wife, who is the love of my life, who's my soulmate, who is being attacked in a way that went, at least in my estimation, went beyond professional. And she got like, pushed like, off. She got case, she right? got booted oh. off the case for uh, for making a what they call an extrajudicial statement um, to the press when we had discovered um, something about the DNA, and you know we felt that it exonerated our guy, and so she made this thing. And, and this is like, and typically there was no gag order on us. All right. And they had been trying my client in the press for three years. So there's this this rule in the in the ethics rules for lawyers, because there, there are rules, believe it or not, that we have to follow. And it's called the safe harbor, where if your client is being tried in the press and the prosecution is making statements and Don Klein was doing like fireside chats on the news about our client. And, you know, talking about the facts of the case. I mean, they were, they were trying him in the press, like unequivocally. So we believe that it was a safe harbor for her to be able to make this statement. Well, because also that's another reality I think people don't get. They think the you know, the impartial jury is supposed to go behind the scenes, not pay attention to what's happening in the press. But the reality is like your brother, your cousin, or you, you know, you may look at the press, but that information finds its way back to the oh, jurors. Dude, are you kidding me? Like in, in that case, like, that's what I was saying. We polled. We knew. it's It was in Douglas County. They all knew the case. Like there wasn't one, like there was not one juror on our jury that had not heard of the case. Tell me about the case and the trial itself and, you know, what ultimately happened with it. So ultimately he's convicted. I mean, he slept through his death penalty case. That's what I'm saying. It's like, it didn't matter what I said. Like the facts did not matter in that case because of appearances. Any jury that looks at a man sitting there sleeping through his own death penalty case immediately believes that he's guilty period, you know, and they were, that's why I'm saying we had no idea and it's completely a violation of civil rights that they were giving this guy, they were knocking him out, man. (laughs) Like they were giving the guy a tranquilizer. I've, I've got like proof of it. Like do you I've think got the, the guy who was administering it? Do you think I, the prosecutor? I, I don't know, dude. Like, like I, I, I can only guess. All I can tell you is that they spent millions and millions of dollars investigating that case and trying that case. Like the, this concept that people don't seem to understand is that money is spent when when cases are tried by the state. And if it's a high profile case, I'm talking millions and millions of dollars in manpower hour, you know, it's like testing, travel, testing, all of it, dude, it cost a fortune. And once they had landed on Garcia as the guy based on, and at the point that they arrested him, they had nothing more than mere presence in the state. Because as you'll find out, there was no forensic evidence whatsoever at either of the two crime scenes linking my client to either of these brutal, brutal double homicides in which both cases knives were used. And if you know anything about 
the commission of a crime and in particular a murder with a knife, especially with Mary Brumbeck, who had just an ungodly amount of defensive wounds that the woman fought for her life. Typically what happens because knife fights aren't like they happen in movies where movies. somebody's just like, it's like people, there's flailing arms. There's you're inevitably going to knife yourself. In a, you're going to nick yourself at very yeah. least, or you're going to leave some DNA somewhere. Right. You know, and you've got this situation where this happened at four o'clock, at least in the state's estimation, because remember the bodies aren't discovered until Tuesday. So they don't know what day that the, the, the crimes actually took place. Now we've got a, a 72 degree day, Mother's Day in in May, and not one neighbor hears anything. Mm. In the states, the, like they don't hear four, four or five gunshots being fired from outside of the house with a nine millimeter. No one hears any screaming. And, you know, you just have to think about the reality of a 70, 70 plus day, first beautiful day of the spring late spring and it's mother's day and it's right around dinner time i mean Everybody what are what are people what are people doing like uh -huh. they're grilling man they're out they're grilling they're in their backyards so you know when we start doing our own investigation we go and canvas and talk to witnesses who would be willing to talk to us which is another whole issue <laughs> you know it, it's like that part of it is something that people don't really understand in terms of like us having access to a witness to be able to question them and see, you know, cause look, a cop asked some questions. I don't know if a cop was feeding them information. I don't know, like, or if I'll read a report, I have additional questions. So of course, they I already have the story to... locked in. Yeah, well, it, but beyond that, like the prosecution cannot say to somebody, I'm forbidding you to talk to the defense. Right. But what they can say is, is, well, it's your choice. You definitely don't have to talk to them. Yes. It's completely up to you. Right. And, and if you've got people that have already reached a conclusion on their own that they think based on what they're hearing in the press and based on what they're hearing from the prosecutor, that this person did it, they're going to be so inclined not to speak to us. So it's like, there's so much that goes against trying cases like this that makes it so much harder because the state has all the money. They have all the resources. Dude, the investigation that went into Garcia after he's arrested is like unprecedented. How did they like, land on Garcia? How did they land on him? So basically when they, they kind of landed on it, like, I don't know how far you went, like how far are you into the season at this point? Uh, like, have you started, are you, have you started listening to that season yet? Yeah, like, I have started listening to it. And it's long, dude. So yeah. like, trust me, I ain't sweating you if you're not that deep into it. <laughs> oh, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, you're yeah. done. <laughs> right. So like, basically they get to the point where. I mean, I've know, gotten through the murders themselves. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, so. You're probably to the juncture where the Thomas Hunter and Shirley Sherman uh, killings, that case goes cold yep. for five yep. years. They, they just yep. can't figure it out. They're, they can't find a motive. And if they don't have a motive. That's it, the 11-year-old kid, the housekeeper. That's the 11-year-old boy uh, who turns out to be the son of the director of the pathology department at Creighton. Right. All right. So like in law enforcement, initially – is thinking that Shirley was the target because mm. who in the, who in the world, you know, if it's not somebody that's close to the child would target an 11 year old, which right. Like who just got home from school. Did know, they look the at the dad? Yeah, they did. Okay. You, you know, they did look at the, you know, and when I got the 
you know, and the guy's a pathologist, and pathologists just by trade are kind of strange birds. Oh, yeah. A little bit, you know what I mean? Psychiatrists and pathologists. <laughs> right. And, you know, in, in like in terms of death, that's what pathologists do. <laughs> you know, yeah, they deal in death. Exactly. So, they're, and they're very clinical. You know yeah. what I'm saying? So, mm-hmm. when I first got the 911 tape of Bill Hunter calling it in when he discovers that his son has been brutally murdered, it gave, like, I had chills up and down my spine. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> I'm like he because he's like there. He's like I just walked into my house and it appears that there's two people. Three died. stab wounds, <laughs> right? But but like he doesn't like he doesn't react. It sounds very like, clinical. Yeah, it's, it was a hundred percent clinical, and it, it's like it's not the response you'd expect from like if I walked into a house, God forbid, and like any of my four kids had been murdered, I'd be out of my mind. You know, like there would be no part of me that was calm. You know, so it's like this was the diametric opposite of that, and and OPD felt the same way because mm-hmm. they looked at they looked at Bill for a long time. Like they they didn't like he had a he was alibied out though. Like you know what I mean? Like he was yes. at work. They knew he was there unless the timeline. You know, I mean, the, the unless fact they're is wrong they, in the timeline. Well, yeah. but they didn't know the timeline other than the fact that Bill Hunter's the one who called it in. Right. You know what I'm saying? So they right. they don't know, but but they have this this dude walking around the neighborhood like shortly after thomas got home from school like that we have like four or five eyewitnesses that see someone that doesn't belong in this affluent neighborhood called dundee in in omaha like it's all doctors lawyers you know professionals that make pretty good money real nice houses so you know people in those types of neighborhoods keep their eyes out you know you know so so they had some eyewitnesses that all kind of described for the most part. I mean, to the extent where they were able to do that, you know, they, they made a, you know, they went to a sketch artist and they did a, you know, they had a sketch that was done that was posted out and like released to the public. Uh, and it was a composite, you know, and all of them were kind of like, yeah, it kind of looks like what the guys like none of them were like, you nailed it. Like the composite artist just crushed that, you know, because they all had different perceptions of what they saw, like we were talking about earlier. So, but they all said that the guy, you know, like had an ill fitting suit and was carrying this, like, this, like, looked like an over the shoulder, like, satchel. And, you know, a couple people saw this, uh, what they believed was like a, a small, uh, Honda CRV or like type small crossover SUV type deal parked a street away. So like they had that, they just couldn't, they, you know, and so they looked at, at, at Bill Hunter, they just dismissed it. I mean, they, they pollied him. They kind of kept him on the radar. They interviewed him a bunch of times because they just, they couldn't crack it. And, you know, and, and originally they really thought it was more Shirley because Shirley had a daughter who was in a very tumultuous relationship with a guy who had like months prior had broken her daughter's jaw, who was a meth addict, ah. you know? And so they, they were really kind of thinking and, and Shirley had helped her daughter get an order of protection against this guy. Her tires had been slashed two weeks before she was carrying a knife for her own personal protection we discovered that she was keeping a log because she believed that that he was dealing meth out of the little like she had a small uh, like a small house on her property and and behind the house that she lived at that her daughter and this guy were living in and she kept a log book of the comings and goings of mm-hmm. the people because she was trying to number one 
she had grandkids with, you know, that were her daughters and she didn't want this guy around her grandchildren at all, you know? So like there, there's real viable suspect, very viable suspect. So, you know, they were kind of, but the guy kind of had an alibi, not really, you know, cause he worked at a job where no one could definitively say whether or not he was there specifically at the times that they think that it took place. And again, remember, we don't know what day it took place. So ultimately when the second set of homicides take place, somewhat similar, I mean, there were different MOs because the first ones were all knives from the house. There was no gun used and the knives were both left in the victim's necks, which are our criminologist said is an absolute sign. Like it's like that is a signature, like no bones about it. Like it's very rare. He's like, I've done cartel killings. I've done like, I've looked at thousands of cases. I've never seen this where they left the knives impaled in the sides of their necks. So when you get and had multiple knives, right? Right. And they were all from the house, meaning that the killer came without a weapon to commit these crimes, which is extremely strange. For a plan. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, theoretically, it's planned, right? So, I mean, typically, if you're coming to kill somebody, you're going to have a weapon with you as opposed to relying on the fact that you're going to be able to secure a knife within that house, not knowing how many people are going to be in that house. And then you like, and for us, like adding in the factor that, look, if if Garcia is the guy and his theory of revenge is that he's going to kill the child of the man that he feels destroyed his career, that's a very, sp- very specific MO. And, and to kill a child is a very different mentality to the, than killing an adult. It just right. is, you know, so like, like we're looking at that and like, man, it, it doesn't fit. It really doesn't fit because there's no way. Garcia would like he would know he he worked in that department he, he would know that that Bill Hunter wasn't going to be home at three or four in the afternoon when they think that that homicide took place you know so it's like so you then know if if they're going to make Thomas Hunter the target that and theoretically thinking that Shirley was Bill's wife you know that that is a very specific MO and then you you go to 2013 when the Brumbecks are murdered again instead of you know him killing a child it, it's then because there's the connection you have bill hunter who is the director and then you have roger brumbeck who is the former chair of the, the pathology department at craven that's the link so at that point in time they've decided that is the common link between these two crimes we feel it's the same person that did them so they then start digging into former residents and they go through a laundry list of anybody that may have had beef with Creighton. And ultimately they land on a few different guys. Like there's the Russian Michael Belenke, who was the primary guy for the longest time. And then like Garcia started popping up and Garcia had a real rough time there. They start digging into his past. They see that this thing has affected his career. It's followed him, you know, cause that, that concept of waiting seven years before doing something, it's kind it's of like, quite oh, a cooling that's, off that's, period. yeah, that's quite a cooling off period. But then, you know, then they discover that two months before the murders that he'd been fired from LSU based on the fact that he had lied on his application and did not put in there that he had been a resident at Creighton and that LSU and doing their due diligence found out that that was it and they, they terminated him. So, but, but he doesn't know, like they could never prove that he saw a letter that, that, that was the cause. Cause I had that woman on the stand, you know, I mean, it's, it's like, 
could he have assumed it? Maybe, you know, but there was this concept that like once he got fired and if you didn't finish that first year of your residency, that that is a death knell, that you can't get another residency. But he did get another residency the following year based on a recommendation from Bill Hunter, you know, which we had that letter that so because he went and got a residency with the pathology department at, at UIC here in Chicago. So, you know, like there, it fit in a lot of ways, but there were a lot of things that didn't really kind of add up. But like we felt going in that their their narrative was strong enough that we had to really dig into the evidence and, and basically how it really always is. Yes, there's a presumption of innocence, and yes, it's a hundred percent the burden on the state to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt. We don't have to prove anything. That's just not how it really works in application. Like in a case like this, we have to prove that our guy didn't do it. Didn't you know, do it. like there's there, there's no question about it. So, wasn't there another murder too that was somewhat similar to? One of the like a third murder, yes, yes. Yeah. and it, it predated Thomas Hunter and Shirley Sherman's by about four months, and it was very the MO was the same. Mm. It was a woman named Joy Blanchard who had been murdered, and the knife had been left in her neck, and that case was also cold, and that that place was like, you know, but they couldn't make they couldn't make a link for, for between either Sherman and Hunter and Joy Blanchard. They just, they couldn't, they couldn't make that link, which for them, even because they, in, in what shocked us is that they had redacted all of the investigation because they initially Omaha PD believed that they were linked because of the MO, because of the knife mm -hmm. being left in the, in the neck. And we, when we get the discovery, there's not one mention of Joy Blanchard anywhere, which tells us that they went back and either extracted all of the reports that that had any uh, investigation into these being linked because they didn't want us to start looking into it. So Allison actually was Googling and found out about that murder and we had to file a motion. Why wouldn't that Our, be a uh, Brady violation? I mean, we argued it, but dude, like everything about this case was just bizarre like we we are our, our initial judge who was the judge for the first two and a half years who had no experience with a case like this at all like it had never like he was over his skis like way mm. he denied all of our motions which it was like the should, first judge in the delphi murders <laughs> exactly exactly you know and, and so this guy like two and a half years in who had denied our motions to sever the trials you know, who had denied our motion for change of venue, who had denied our motions to suppress based on, uh, you know, and to quash the arrest based on various things that were all constitutionally sound arguments. And frankly, the, the motion for change of venue should never have not been granted. That 100% should not have been tried in that county. There's no way it should have been. You could never get a fair trial there. So this guy, like, all of a sudden claims that he gets sick and that he can't continue on the trial which is a huge disadvantage. Like people don't understand. It's like, this is the guy because the, the, the judge is the gatekeeper of the evidence. Like, like everything that happens, right. but like the, the war is waged. The in institutional trial. memory. Yeah. That's it. You know? So then you, you, they bring in a guy and it's already set for trial. And of course, Doherty, who is the original judge never misses a day of work ever. He's never not on the bench. So whatever this sickness was, seems to me to have been completely fictitious um and then they put on this this new judge uh judge randall and you know and and he he's a he's definitely a more assertive judge 
And he's and he's definitely handled bigger cases. Like they they obviously internally felt that he was the right judge because they Do knew the fight that we were putting they were up. Man. They could lose an appeal because of who the first judge was. Yeah, hundred percent. Like you know, and then like like this story could go on forever, dude. It's like, like <laughs> it, it really is. I mean, this trial was unbelievable. Like it was like the just the battles that went on. It, it, it's like to me, it's the most fascinating trial. Is is fascinating as people thought Murdoch was. This thing is even more fascinating procedurally. It's it's unbelievable. Let's talk about the DNA. The DNA seems so. Sort of- there was no DNA. Yeah. That's the thing. Yeah. So there there was. So what they did, like in terms of building out their narrative, they and and it it was a really bad fact for us though. You know, but it was something that we attacked. But so there was a doctor, and when you kind of get into us digging into to Garcia and his time at Creighton, you'll you'll learn the name. But her her name was uh, Doctor Butra. Like this was Garcia's arch nemesis. Like she was an Indian doctor, you know, very seasoned, very bright, very stern in terms of her teaching approach. Like she did not tolerate people that weren't doing the work. She did not tolerate people that she thought were lazy. And she thought that Garcia was all of those things. And, and she, her, her, she was a tough love type of teacher. So she would undress her students, you know, cause residents are still training, you know, I mean, there's still a, an academic side of that. It's not, you know, there's practical experience, but there's also, you know, education that's still continuing to go on when you're a resident and she could not stand Garcia and Garcia could not stand her. And she would like undress him in front of other residents saying, how do you not know this? What are you doing? Like, what are you doing? Are you not reading any, you know, like how, like you should know this by, you know, like that kind of relationship. And so Garcia, you know, had to like gone off her a couple of times verbally and, you know, Hunter had gone to him and said, look, man, like she is your superior. I need you to understand that unequivocally. Like you cannot do that. Like, you know, you are on super secret probation right now. You pull any more stunts like that. You're done here. I'm just telling mm. you that. So that relationship was awful. And then ultimately there's this prank that is pulled by Garcia with another resident where they call another resident's wife while he's taking his step three exam and say, Hey, you know, this is, we're calling from Creighton. We just wanted to let you know that your husband's vacation time was not approved and he needs to leave the exam and come back to the hospital right now. So they, <laughs> they quickly, they quickly figure out that it was Garcia and this other guy, uh, Brian Wynn. And they terminate him immediately. They're like, that is beyond unprofessional. You're gone. So he gets terminated and, you know, and he like, they gave him the opportunity. Like they said, look, you can kind of like own this and resign. Okay. And, and, and we'll help you. We'll, we'll make it appear as if you finished a full year or if you're going to fight us on it, you know, because firing, like these are contractual employees, you know, like liability is always an issue for them in the minds of the lawyers for Creighton, you know, right. it's a very real thing. Every word that is written is, is parsed by the lawyers, you know? So like in terms of how it goes down, you know, Garcia's like, no, I'm not going to resign. I'm like, you guys are like, I feel like that, that you're like, I'm being treated in a discriminatory manner because I'm Hispanic. And like, there's no one that's going to tell me otherwise. I think Boutra treated me that way because I'm Hispanic. I think you're treating me that, you know, so he, like, that was a real thing for him in his mind. Like he, he thought, so he refused and he ended up appealing it. So they upheld both of his appeals. So he's terminated. So then on his record, 
it appears that he didn't finish. And they then have to report that to the national database that he was terminated. And they give a very generic, you know, for un, uh, you know, unprofessional behavior, you know, so like that. So that's out there. It's floating out there. And, and like Garcia kind of made that bet himself, you know. So, yeah, it, it, as that thing kind of progresses, you know, it, it just gets to the point where, you know, all those years pass and Omaha kind of like sees these things that kind of keep following him. You know, but the problem from our perspective is what they just couldn't show that Garcia was aware. I'm like, do you have letters that show that he was carbon copied? So that right. in his mind, he knows or that Bill Hunter. Them. Right, yeah. exactly. You know, and, and those facts just didn't exist. You know, so I, I don't know, man. Yeah, it, it, it's a mind-blowing case, man. Yeah. <laughs> but like, it, it's, it's like, and when we start getting into the evidence in terms of you know, like if Garcia was the guy, it did it didn't happen in the time that they said it. It, it couldn't have happened at four o'clock in the afternoon. And I'm not basing that just on the fact that nobody heard it. I'm basing it on the fact that Roger Brumbeck was in rigor mortis when they found him on Tuesday. And physiologically speaking, scientifically speaking, that's impossible. And I hired the most preeminent forensic pathologist in the world to testify to that extent, who was Werner Spitz, who had done the you know, he had done every big case. He had, was like the did the autopsy on Kennedy for the Warren Commission. I mean, the guys he was like an, he was like a relic. He was like ninety, but you know, but the guy was like a, a superstar witness for us. And then two weeks before trial, CBS airs this John Benet Ramsey special, the twenty year anniversary of John Benet Ramsey, where they put together a panel of experts. And of course, Spitz is the forensic guy, and he on this show unequivocally says that he believes that John Benet's brother killed right killed John Benet and yeah. says how he did it he then the brother then turns around in a matter of hours and sues him for 200 million dollars and i'm trying Can't to deal with his dude it's it like and I'm trying to deal with Spitz's like New York attorney and he's like i can't have him testify because right. this judge is going to allow them to vordire your expert and get into this i'm like that was a TV show. I'm like, they have to stick to what his professional opinion was. That was, that was for entertainment value. The judge is like, I don't care. I'm going to let them ask anything they want. And so his attorney said, I can't let him testify. So we lose our star witness who was going to testify that science says that they could not have died on Sunday because he would never be in rigor mortis anymore. This all makes me think of something. Do you ask your clients? Do you ask them? If did you did it? Yeah. No, well, I mean, we didn't in terms of Garcia because he denied it from right. the minute we met him. He's like, I did not do these. Like, I didn't do any of them, you know? Yeah. And it's like, so, but I mean, as a, gen as a general rule, yeah. we don't ask because it doesn't impact our job in terms of whether they did it or they didn't do it. Now, what we do do is when the discovery comes in and I like, cause everybody comes in and denies like it's, it's a, it's not like TVs and movies, you know, defendants aren't coming in and the lawyers not saying, you have to tell me the truth. I'm your lawyer. You know, it's like, that doesn't happen. It's like people come in and say, man, I didn't do this. And then when you get the discovery in, you say, all right, I need you to come into the office. Let's go through this discovery. And then, you know, I'm saying, Hey man, they got a lot of facts, bad, bad facts. It's not looking good. So like, I'm not telling you to confess anything to me, but I'm, I'm just telling you that the evidence makes it look an awful lot like you did this. 
So, you know, like we have that conversation, but like on the front end, I don't like, you know, it's just like, that's fiction. Like, Oh, did you do it? I need to know. You have to tell me, I can't do my job if you didn't tell it because you can do your job. So you might ask them, Hey, what do you think they have? You know, well, that, that's the exact question we ask. Yeah. What, what the exact question we ask is like, and we tell them, we see, do not tell us what you did or didn't do. Tell us what they're going to say that you did or didn't do. <laughs> you know, what, what are they saying that you did? And that we frame it that way very carefully, because if we come up with an alternate defense in terms of us researching the case and going through the discovery and our client has told us something early on that I can no longer put him on the stand because I'm not going to have my client suborn perjury because it doesn't fit with the theory. the theory that we've created. You know what I mean? So that, that that's why, you know, you never ask them that question because, you know, I want to be able to vet the evidence. Right. You know, in terms of, and frankly, they're, they, they just, they're going to lie if they did it. They just like, I've, I've never had a client in 20 years that, that came in and just said, yeah, I did all this. And I did it, man. Yeah, I did it, man. You got to get me off this shit, dude. Like, you know, it doesn't happen like that. So, you know, like typically it happens, like we go through the evidence and I'm like, all right, we need to talk about a plea deal. You know, I like, I, like this isn't magic, you know, like, I, like no silver tongue, like lawyer is going to be able to get you off these bad facts, man. You're like, you're done. They got you dead to rights. So let's look at this pragmatically and let's figure out, you know, let's see if we can get you the best deal we can, you know? So it's, yeah. Yeah. I wanted to ask you one thing about sort of like thinking from a defense attorney's perspective, you know, you made the point, right? that we sort of convict people in the press before cases. And it sounds like that certainly happened in the Garcia case. And thinking of some of the current cases, like the, the two girls, Abby Delphi. and Lucky, yeah, in Delphi kind of convicted in the press in advance. Abby is uh, Abigail Williams and Libby is Liberty Germain. They were kidnapped on the historic railroad bridge in 2017 in Delphi, Indiana. And what's fascinating about that case is that it took five years to get an arrest, even though Libby recorded a video of the killer approaching them on the bridge and audio of him saying, down the hill. Although probably that, you know, people have uh, more- Less so than less right. so than the Idaho 4 guy. Like, right. so, like, like I did an episode on, on the docket, which is our one-off, you know, where yeah. I just talk about current stuff, comparing those two PCAs. Because I was having these Twitter wars with people that I, I suspect were not attorneys that don't deal with probable cause affidavits for a living that were like, you know, oh, they're withholding the strongest evidence in the in the Richard Allen thing. I'm like, no, they're absurd. Not. Right. That is not <laughs> absolutely absurd. Right. I'm like, this is this is the state's <laughs> best opportunity to put their best foot forward in terms of getting this out to the public at large. They have included every single piece of good evidence that they have in their possession at that time. Like because they're questions. trying, to, they're trying at that moment because they're probably going to have a hearing. You know exactly where I am trying to dismiss it based on a lack of probable cause. But, yeah, and they're also trying to sell it to the public too. 100%. Right? Yeah, that's a huge so. advantage. It's like you and I just talked about that twenty minutes ago. They have the state has that massive advantage of being in the position to get their theory of the case out to the public long before the defense has any ability to say anything or challenge any of the evidence. So they always put their best foot forward. Now, are they going to keep out bad facts? Of course. 
They're not trying to, you know what I mean? So could they have information that they've not put in there? Yes, but it's going to be bad information. And like that Richard Allen thing, paper thin. Like, yeah, I read that and I thought, okay, why? I was like, right. (laughs) I was like, what? I was like, this is not a good one. So like when, when the, the Idaho four one dropped, I was like, wow. Okay. So here you go. Like, this is what a strong lean towards guilty like it, it's trending guilty pca looks like this what what's the difference a, for you between those two yeah just the fact that you've got time and data from the phone you've got video of him or his vehicle being in the area around the time that we pretty much know that the the homicides took place You've obviously got the the sheath with the DNA on it. You've got, you know, I mean, they had him, they had him in the area. I mean, we we definitely know for a fact that this guy was in the area at the time. And now, you know, whereas with Alan, we do as well, but by his own statement. And I always take exception to the fact when people say, "What? Well, Alan admitted it." No. Admit the word admitted has a very different connotation than volunteering the information. Well, and even if you're going to use admitted, it's one of hundreds of people who admitted they were there that day. Right. The parties that- right but, but do you understand what I'm saying by admitted? Yeah. Admitted yeah, yeah. means uh, it implies like that, you're, that you've done something wrong and that you're admitting that you did it. Whereas, like, basically, what went down in Delphi is you know, the girls went missing. They came out with a public statement asking the public, look, if you were if you were at the bridge that day, please come in and let us know. We need to try to to figure out who was out there. This guy did that. Like it did it didn't matter whether like and people were like, well, and like what I've heard is that he did it the day of that the girls went missing, that he went to the the uh the resource Conservation officer. officer yeah. yeah. And that you know, he made that statement the day of. And that and so people their their retort to that is okay, well. Yeah, but he didn't know about the video. I'm like, it doesn't matter if he if he's the guy. He's not going and telling them anything. Period. <laughs> like, just he, use your common sense. Cover it up, Whether right? there's a video or not, right? He's not going and admitting. He's not putting himself at the scene of the crime. If he's the guy who committed the crimes, I'm sorry, that does not happen. Because it's different than people. They, they you know, because yes, killers will go back to the scenes or they'll show up at a funeral, but it's different. Than going to law enforcement and saying, "Hey, yeah, I was there the day that it happened." Yeah, you know, they might lurk like they right, say, they, right? They creep back, you know, that. like you know, admire their handiwork. That's a different thing than what happened here. So you know, in in that whole that ballistics, and you can't see it, but I'm using finger quotes around that with the ejected, unspent casing. Like that is not a real thing. That is not real evidence. There is never like a, like if anyone that listens to this podcast can provide any kind of of precedent in terms of an appellate case that has been tried or somebody has been convicted, not from uh, ballistics and tool markings coming through a barrel, but being ejected. Right. Because they just from the shell case. Or right. The, they found an unspent casing. It wasn't fired. It just popped out. And we were talking about the most common like nine millimeter. The most common ammunition purchased on the market, you know, everyone like nine millimeters are one of the most pop, if not the most popular uh, and most purchased caliber of weapon. You know, it's just a very common weapon in a, in a, in a state that is absolutely Jason gun crazy. 
Yeah. Like Indiana, right. you don't, there is no cooling off period. You get like there, you don't have to have a FOID card. Like in Illinois, you have to have a fire, you know, a fire owner's identification card. You don't have to do any of that in Indiana. You want to go buy a gun, you go buy a gun. They have guns. They are packing there. Like that, like everyone has guns. So, you know, and, and for them to like, and they worded that very carefully in that PCA. Like they, they did a CYA on that. If you read that sentence very carefully that, you know, the person who made this determination that look, this is completely subjective as to that person. We're not necessarily saying it's us that's saying that it was, his right. you know, like they worded it very carefully in that, which is very telling. So, and I want justice for Abby and Libby. We all do like, absolutely. I think that if they're going to get this guy, it is not on any of that evidence that it's going to have to be the stuff that they get post arrest, which is frankly, when most of the, the investigation takes place, like you'll right. see in Garcia, all they had was him present in the state like that. When they got the ding that his debit card was used at a wing stop in Omaha on the day that they believed that the murders took place, he was, that was it. They ran in and got the, the arrest warrant with, with no physical evidence connecting him to either the scenes are like, he was there. He was there. He's the guy, you know? So like, it, it's, it's a very similar situation with Richard Allen, except they have like just a, like maybe a hair more if you were to buy the, the spent cartridge thing. Cause that's all they have. I mean, well, I, dude, I saw this guy in person and he is like five, three. Oh, you saw him in person. Yeah. You, I feel like, I, like I've been, to go. Yeah. Yeah, I've been going to the hearings because Delphi is like two and a half hours. So I'm going to go cover that whole damn thing. I'm going to be like in June for this thing that's coming up, which is his bond hearing where they're asking him to set a bond. The the state, by way of it being a death penalty case, it shifts the burden to them where they're going to actually have to put on evidence. This isn't going to be like your normal bond hearing where you're just going in, the state's given the factual basis. And then, you know, we're basically begging the judge saying, look, this is a good, good citizen. You know, they have a job, they have kids, blah, 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 you know, set a reasonable bond amount. This is a different thing because of the nature of the case. They're going to have to, they're attacking that PCA. They're like, because in that case, if you'll remember, it was a rare circumstance where the defense actually fired out a letter. Right, right know. after. So, right. Yeah. They're like, yeah, okay, well, everything that that PCA says about our guy is BS because, like, and, and this is why, you know. So they, they had their reply and that came out, you know. So what they'll find if he's the guy and they're going to be able to prove it, it's going to have to come from data, like from his computers, you know, if they found anything in the house, you know, and there was five years that passed, man. You know, I mean, if the guy, like, is the guy an idiot? Like, the guy commits the crime, but he's, he keeps the same jacket. You know, he keeps the same weapon, you know, he's like, he's figured, well, they, the girls didn't get shot, you know, so I'll keep the weapon because like, he's not aware that a, a bullet discharged out of it. Like, you right. know I mean? It's like, there, there's just, you know, it's like, man, I want that case to get solved, but it, it's got to be the right person. So, we'll, I mean, we'll see. We'll see. I'll tell you, like, what do you think life is like for those defense attorneys right now? I think in Allen, mm -hmm. um, they're chomping at the bit, depending on what they find. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, like, let's go have the trial tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. Like, like, but, but that's the thing. That's the only thing that gives me pause because of this mass. Like I have never, and, and I was talking about this with Brett on, on a prosecutor's episode that we did, a uh, legal brief that we did, like neither of us had ever heard of a bond hearing being this far out. 
it's unheard of. Right. It really is. Like, right. We're talking months, six, seven, eight months. It's crazy for a bond hearing. So, and the fact that they didn't do a speedy demand right. is telling to me. But speedy demands are scary. Like in right. retrospect, I wish I would have done a speedy demand in Garcia because of so much of the crap that they put in a trial is stuff that they got after the fact. Well, because you're after in confirmation bias mode too. Totally. Prosecutors and police. Totally. You're looking for any connection that you can Exactly. Make. Right. At that point, you're f- like firmly locked on that guy. You know what I mean? It's like I make the argument in, in Garcia that, you know, they had they had tunnel vision immediately, you know, like as soon as they locked into the concept of it being a Creighton connection, they forgot about everything else and they didn't look at anything else, which, you know, after five years of the Hunter thing, <laughs> you know, they're like, man, we're not doing that again. Cause yeah, right. like, we do like, we did like that didn't like, we didn't get anything off that. Like we just couldn't figure it out, you know? So I get why they did it, but at the same point, you know, cause yeah, that, that man, as soon as I start thinking about Garcia, I just like <laughs> start having PTSD. Like, <laughs> it's crazy. Well, and that's, that's actually a thing. I think that a lot of uh, defense attorneys experience and that was oh, man. like, I hear them often saying like, well, what if I had done this? What if I had done that? What if I had taken this? You always double guess. Carry a big weight. Yeah. Always dude. Like you can't help but do it. Like, it, like if you have a client that's going to be executed on your watch, like try to imagine that. Yeah, You know, I mean, like, it's constant, like, you know, and then like they filed an appeal on this and they're like, and we knew they were going to shit all over us. I'm like, dude, read the transcript of the trial. Like, I'll let that speak for itself. You know, and the, the problem with that was, is that, you know, because they were focusing on the fact that Allison got removed from the case and all like the things that they shouldn't have been focusing on instead of the actual appellate issues. Like, they were separate appellate attorneys, right? Totally, yeah. Well, yeah, because like you never want to like handle an appeal if you were the trial lawyer because, you know, and, and for me, I take no, I, I have a harbor no ill will towards them for saying ineffective assistive counsel because they do. Well, you can't, after, I mean, I, you can't use the, the most likely to be effective defense on appeal which is ineffective exactly exactly so like in, in in like this thing that they put together like they violated his sixth amendment right by taking allison off that case which was completely unwarranted and we put because we we fired right back at them i tried to have don removed for the exact same thing he was doing the exact same thing that what Alice that allison did except for years his fireside chats you know the governor of the state reinstating the death penalty because the death penalty was repealed there, and the governor, who, who's Ricketts, puts together a, a, a pack <laughs> with his own money in order to get it back on. And he's like, we need the death penalty for guys like Anthony Garcia Oh, prior wow. to my guy being convicted. Like, in the press, saying that. I didn't even it, know that. Oh, man, dude. It was, it was like, it was, nev- it was a never-ending railroad. You know, it, it, but it, it kind of goes to that thing. Like I sit here today as we speak, not knowing whether or not right. I did it. Right. Like, honestly, like I, I say that in the beginning, like I sit here, like that's, that's why I tell all my listeners on my pod. I'm like, I, I'm giving you guys all the evidence and I can't wait to hear where you land on this. Cause I, I want to actually have a jury of Garcia's peers who are my listeners who hear all the evidence. And I want to hear what you guys say, where you've both heard all the evidence where you're not watching my clients sleep through it. And so you don't have a predisposition, you know, predisposition. So like, I like it, I'm fascinated to hear it, you know, in most cases, do you not know? 
I mean, you never know, dude. That's what I'm trying to say. That's what I'm saying. It's like at the end of the day, what I try to explain to people is you have a prosecutor and a defense attorney that both just have a story, a theory that they have based on what their perception of the evidence is. And that's it. None of us really know. Right. None of us do. Like two people know, again, the victim who in a homicide obviously is not with us anymore, sadly. And then you've got the perpetrator, the real perpetrator. Those are the only two people who definitively know what happened, aside from a case like where you're in a restaurant, somebody comes in, blows somebody's head off, and they're like, that was definitely the guy. Or, you know, yeah. I mean, in a case where they have direct, like, smoking gun evidence, that's different. But in a circumstantial case, we never know. It's like, it's like Brett and Alice with, like, the Scott Peterson thing. Like, they are all day. That guy is guilty as hell. I don't care what anybody says, but they don't know. We like don't ultimately. Together, right. I mean, they, they, they can put together a compelling state, you know, and it's like, and I listen to it. And I'm like, yeah, it's compelling, but we still don't know. You know, it, I, like, it, I, I can put it like, we, we just don't know, you know, and, and it's like, yes, yeah, so like, I mean, that that's, it's torturous, really. It's, it's, and it's like that on every case, though, you know, that where there isn't that smoking gun evidence, where there's always just that one little kernel of doubt piece yeah it sounds like it's really interesting listening to you talk about garcia it's almost like the podcast is giving you your first chance to truly have an impartial jury exactly and i that's exactly what i say in the first episode i explained i said i am gonna give you everything this isn't this isn't slanted defense attorney guy podcast i'm giving it all to you i'm gonna put like i said all of the bad evidence in terms of garcia you're gonna hear it but then you're going to finally hear the defense and then make your judgment, you know, because like I'm telling you, the scientific evidence is pretty compelling. <laughs> it's, it's, it's pretty hard to deny the, the scientific evidence. It's like if you were to sort of like step back and think about what you would want, like us, the general public to either know about sort of trials or that role of our role of being jurors is there is there any kind of message you can think of yes you, yeah it's a very it's a very simple message and, and I'm, I'm i'm like puking this thing out constantly on twitter i'm like look this is the reality it is absolutely human nature to form an opinion when you start hearing albeit the facts that are the state's theory of the case initially either through the media or online or on socials, wherever you learn about a case, our human nature is to initially form an opinion as to guilt or innocence. What I am begging everyone out there to do is fine. I'm not judging you because we all do that, but don't make it your final opinion until the evidence is vetted. It is the entire purpose of a trial is for us mm. to hear the evidence because you initially are seeing everything through the filter of the state or the police who they believe wholeheartedly that they've got the right guy or at least they should we hope that they do you know so but but it again it's their theory they were not there they right. were not present at the time that the crime was committed they're doing exactly what the defense does except they're doing it in terms of being a prosecutor and they're putting a jigsaw puzzle together piece by piece by piece there's going to be pieces missing you know and and and, and there's going to be pieces that might not fit just right and that is the purpose of a trial so yeah go ahead have your initial opinion but please just keep it that 
and right. don't land on that being your final analysis of the case because you're doing a disservice to everyone. When you do that, you have to wait because look, like this misnomer that everything goes to trial is completely inaccurate. 95% of cases are pled out. The things that we see go to trial tells you one thing, maybe two. Like there, there is occasionally the defendant who is just adamant about going to trial, even mm-hmm. they, they've got him dead to rise. But for a vast majority of cases, when you are seeing a case that has gone to trial, there is a dispute as to the evidence and the facts. If it's at trial, you know you should take from that fact that it is going to trial, that there is a legitimate dispute as to how the facts have been perceived or interpreted. Yeah. And, it, and, and we owe it to everyone, to, to the victims' families first and foremost, to the victims themselves, to go through the process, to listen to the evidence, to see what is what, because until it's vetted at trial, you just don't know. You need to have that, that opposing party say, all right, I hear what you're saying about this evidence, but what about this? And then at that point, you have an informed ability to make a decision whether or not you feel that that piece of evidence is sufficient in proving that person's guilt. You can't do it otherwise. Otherwise, you're just gl- you know, you're guessing blind in the dark. You know what I mean? So that's yeah. it. So that the, the the message is that have your have your initial opinion, but just consciously tell yourself that's not my final opinion. That's that's what my that's what my first opinion is, but it's not my final. That's it. And it's how I feel about a lot of the, a lot of the cases. Like I think about the trial of Alec Murdaugh down in South Carolina, and I think to myself, like if you put a gun to my head and you made me choose, I would probably so say I feel right. like he's he's guilty. But uh, could I have convicted him based same, on what dude. I saw? Not so sure. Same, dude. Same, same. Like God, I was so on the fence on that. I'm like. It's it's like it's like Garcia. It's like they have this narrative that's super compelling, and like clearly the guy is an absolute turd. You know, I mean, right. anybody who steals his his clients who have either suffered like debilitating injuries, stealing their money. I mean, he's a despicable human being. Take that out of the mix and just look at the facts. And, and like Creighton Waters knew that. You know, that's why there was such a battle about the 404 stuff, about whether or not they were going to allow all the financial stuff to come in. Because it's like, like you can't use 404 stuff to show propensity that he's, you know, this is what he does. Creighton Waters is the prosecutor in the Alec Murdoch case in South Carolina. And you can't use it to show what his character is per se. You know, so they they use that and everyone hated the motive like that motive argument everyone was like that's the worst motive of all time you know so it's not a good motive but that wasn't what he was really using it for right he, was, he knew that getting it all out was going to create that perception that this guy's just a bad guy right, bad just guy. right just a bad guy and which and if they're sitting on the fence which all of us had to be that you're gonna lean guilty and you're gonna find him guilty and like you know, and, and, and it, it created a situation where, where Murdoch had to testify. Right, you know, right. You know, I mean, uh, like every, everyone's like, do I believe this guy as he has a stack of right. all these things? Right, because the, the big lie, you know, that's what I call it, the big lie, the, the kind of lie. I'm like, man, 
I'm like this, like they either him and, and, yeah, Poots uh, misadvised him. Like I, yeah. I'm telling Murdoch, you know, and Murdoch's of course the smartest guy in the room. Like there's nothing worse than having an attorney as your client. Who's you know, convinced. Like, yeah. Right. And he was like, dude, I am it. like, and, and, the, and frankly, the guy's superpower was being, you know, in, incredibly manipulative and, you know, it had an, an exceptional ability to lie to people right to their face. I mean, that was a superpower. It was proven, you know, I mean, like that was without, without exception. So he took that in that trial, believing that he'd be able to do the same to the jury. Right. So like, he went in, but like in terms of how he handled that big lie about being down at the kennels, like saying that he didn't trust sled and that's why, nah, man, like, like, and I say it in one of my pods about it. I'm like, look, it was simple. It, it, the way that law enforcement looks at any case like this is they are going to look immediately. And he knows this. He was a solicitor or a prosecutor down there. Right. You know, he knows definitively he is the last people to see them alive, his wife and his son. He is the husband and the father, and he is the person who discovers the bodies. He is the guy. He is the yep. guy that they're looking at immediately. If he would have just admitted that and said, look, I was not willing, knowing all of that, I was not willing to put myself down at the kennels closer to the time that we think that they died because they already think that I'm the guy. And I didn't want them to get locked in on me to the extent that they're not going to look for anybody else. Right. That's, that's how he should have explained it. It's more plausible. And if he didn't do it, it's true. And then you know what I mean? like, I felt like I couldn't get out of it once I told the lie. Do you believe in that line that it's better for 10 guilty persons to go free than one innocent person? Absolutely. 100%, dude. Like, are you kidding? Like, when I see these guys coming out after 30, 40 years, exonerated, like, full-blown actual innocence, it's like, man <laughs> – that I, you have to try you have to try to put yourself in in that like in that person's shoes for just a minute like yeah. but but really think about it yeah. i'm talking about like if i if like i'm ripped away from my four kids and my wife and everything that i've known of my life on some shit that i didn't do yeah and convicts count those hours by the second oh man dude yeah no i like i i live by that yeah. i live by that because you know, I mean, it, it, it's like, because more likely than not, if somebody's guilty and they're a criminal, they're going to do something else and they'll right. just get right back up in there. The I mean, that's, place, that's right. the, yeah, that's a fact of the matter. I mean, you know, that, that's just, that's kind of the nature of the beast. And it's a whole different conversation in terms of society and, you know, the, the, you know, kind of where the, the people are cast in terms of where they're born and what they're born into and how society treats people. And, you know, I mean, there's a lot of factors involved without even touching into, you know, the mental health side of it and, you know, the addiction side of it. I mean, there's, there's a lot going on, man. You know, I yeah. mean, like this, these are all every single person. Well, we want them to be cookie cutter, right? We want, well, them but it's clear, we, and it's, it's not. Narrative. There's right. this human human need for the simple narrative, and rarely it's easier to stomach it that way. Yeah, you know? it's yeah. it's easier to not have them be human, or even know? easier to like sort of think if I know a simple narrative, then I'll know how to make sure this never happens to me. 
Right. Right. Exactly. And exactly. and so we we often supply things. So Bob, I wanted to give you a chance for any closing thoughts that you wanted to throw out there. Awesome. Um, this has well, been first, an awesome yeah, conversation. I it has, dude. It. I've really enjoyed it. I love doing this stuff. I I thank you for having me on the pod. It was an absolute pleasure. I'm I'm excited about our burgeoning friendship. I'm sure yeah. we'll be talking a lot over the over the years, man. So um, first of all, I wish you luck on on your pod. I know you're you're just getting started on this bad boy, man. But Thanks, I, man. I, I like where you're going with it. Um, like I like obviously biased, but I think this is a pretty pretty interesting conversation. So I hope that your listeners enjoy it. You know, if you want to find my pod again, it's called. And I know Jason gave you kind of a little little love uh, for my pod in the beginning. But Defense Diaries, it's available anywhere. Get your pods. Uh, we do have the serialized, and they are deep dives. So, like if you're if you're like a one-off, we've got you there too. We got the little docket episodes where we handle current cases and breaking cases, but we have a very, very serious deep dive. Um, I think that there's probably maybe only two other pods that are as deep dives as we are, and that's the Murdoch thing with Mandy and then uh, my buddy uh, Josh Hallmark with True Crime Bullshit, um, where he dives into Israel Keys. Like we're the deepest in the game for sure, uh, but we uh, we'd love to have you listen and you know just remember. You know, the one thing that, that I really decided kind of late in terms of creating the podcast was I initially wasn't going to inject the fact that I was a criminal defense attorney into it. I, would, I told my wife, I'm like, nah, it's like I'm trying to get away from that. And then I realized very, very shortly uh, into the journey that that was the wrong approach. And, you know, I, I just want people to kind of understand that the justice system that we live under, it we need both sides and we need competent attorneys on both sides because that's the only way that justice can be done for the victims for their families is having competent counsel on both sides because it's the only way that justice works well bob and i think we got we all got a lot out of that decision to bring that perspective to bear i appreciate that man this is the second of what's been a fun two-part series with defense attorney bob mata if you haven't heard the first episode, I recommend you go back and listen. And if you haven't checked out Bob's podcast, The Defense Diaries, I recommend you check it out. Until next week, I'm Jason Blair, and this is The Silver Linings Hayward.